Welcome to another exciting episode of NIDS Knowledge, this one being Real Space Strategy Edition. This podcast is produced by the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, where we are advancing peace, promoting stability, and helping you to think deterrence. Each week, we will inform you about the latest in space strategy and its importance to our national defense. In our last episode, we discussed some of the background on space export control regimes and the reason that we had two reform efforts in the early 2010s during the Obama administration. Now, in the Biden administration, the National Space Council staff have announced their most recent meeting in December that space export control reform was one of their main priorities for 2024. To discuss the first export control reform effort and this topic generally, my guest is retired Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Stuart Aitkenkade, a career space officer who worked on this issue as a DOD representative to the Space Export Control Reform Interagency Working Group. And full disclosure, I worked on this effort with then Major Aid Kincaid as a consultant to the now defunct National Security Space Office, and I know that he has very substantial, substantive experience based on this topic. So with that, thanks, Stu, for coming on Real Space Strategy. Hey, thanks, Chris. Appreciate you having me on. And uh, by, uh, by default, making me think back 15 years to when we had fun working on ITAR reform. Uh, and I will say um, your choice of doing this interview on Valentine's Day is a bold one. Uh, I could think of many, many other things that you should be doing besides inter- interviewing me on ITAR. Well, you know, we, we did have a T-shirt that said, I heart ITAR, so I think it works just fine. There you um, go. Yeah, so, so real quick, um, before we get into this, for all the lawyers listening, um, the views of the host and the guest are those of their of their own and not to be construed as those of the U.S. government in any shape, manner, or form. So with the lawyers happy, let me just go to the first question here. Looking back in the early 2010s when the first ITAR reform effort was kicked off, can you provide the listeners a brief overview of where we as a nation were both governmental and the industry with regards to space systems component on ITAR. In particular, the one we worked on for our listeners uh, is what's called Category 15, which was the satellite spacecraft components. And was what was the perspective uh, on the list? And if so, were they accurate? Uh, lots of questions there. So let me see if I can work through some of them here. And, and you know, the government perspectives were, were varied. It kind of depended on what seat you were in. From our perspective, where we were looking at the space industrial base, uh, we saw what appeared to us to be a lot of overly restrictive regulations. Um, I remember one of the horror stories being some aluminum table that a satellite was bolted to. By the virtue of the fact that it was bolted to a satellite, it was now ITAR controlled, where it was basically a chunk of aluminum. Now, I never knew how real that story was, if it was totally anecdotal, but that's the sort of thing that we were working with and seeing if maybe we could make things better. Um, Better had a lot of different definitions, too. You know, better from a security perspective, you know, we wanted to build uh, real tough barriers for anybody to um, get their hands on technology they shouldn't. Um, Better could also mean allowing the uh, industry to be more competitive and make some money on on, uh, some of the technology um, that was more, a little more run-of-the-mill. Uh, so we tried to look at it from lots of different perspectives um, with a relatively unbiased view of just trying to move it along and make things better. Um, now, from an industry perspective, I, I can only assume that they felt somewhat hand-tied. Um, they could see uh, their competition overseas um, selling 
virtually identical components to theirs in some cases, um, and I'm sure they felt fairly um, hopeless or helpless in that they couldn't go and compete on a fair stage necessarily on the uh, on the global scale. So uh, again, I'm assuming from that uh, we heard stuff from industry, but um, uh, from the government perspective, we wanted to enable smart regulations that protected things, but enabled the industry to keep investing, selling, and developing the next greatest technology because they could. Um, and you know, innovation isn't free; it's, it takes investment. Allowing them to compete would allow them to continue to evolve the technologies. Sorry, that was a little long-winded. Is that getting what you were no. uh, looking for? No, yeah, that's fine. I mean, the the other thing that I remember is we had quite a bit of industry participation. Um, there were things that in the government they call requests for information (RFIs) that go out um, on websites, and each of the industry people, especially um, the group that advises the FAA, called Comstack Commercial Space Transportation Advisory Committee, had a lot of folks who were were very out, outspoken about it and and lobbying for this effort. And when you saw that they pretty much seemed to be interested in just opening up everything, um, as we talked about in the last episode, for those that remember who were listening, um, w- one of the examples we talked about was the fact that after the Laurel Space incident in the late 90s and the Cox Commission report, everything got lumped over into the U.S. munitions list. And some of the items even that were considered, as we called it, state of the world, not just state of the art, was moved over to the munitions list. And as a result of that, a lot of these same uh, people that are arguing that it's not good enough still now are using similar terms and, and language that they did back in 2010, which I find interesting. So the, I guess the next thing is... Could you give our listeners a bit of a look into the interagency working group, its its dynamics, the, the various agencies? I know you gave a generalized view of the government here, but what I'm just trying to figure out how, how we can explain to folks just how different it is. It's not like the government was all in one voice. Um, there were differences of opinion even among the interagency, correct? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, even within you know the same agencies, there were different views. And, and again, it was understanding and appreciating those different perspectives and and you know you assume noble intent that they're they're not trying to stop progress just because they want to stop progress there had to have been something in their minds or in their perspectives that that drove them to the direction they were um yeah i I know some people just thought that you know folks were just being lazy and taking the easy way out or, or overreacting but but again you have to go back and remember that we're all on the same team and trying to do good um well if what if you once you can get past that and just say, okay, now if I can accept that, let me go and understand what they were trying to do. So I think when we went out and talked to the folks that were running the, um, the uh, like uh, the CCL, you know, on the, on the commerce side, they were very open to stuff, but they were kind of hand-tied by some of the regulations. And the folks that were controlling the regulations were very, very cautious and, and um, uh, hesitant to make any changes. And, and I, I remember talking about it as sort of my... Um, stop sign analogy. You know, once a stop sign is up, nobody wants to take it down. Why? Because of the fear of the unknown. So once a regulation is up and running, it's really hard to get people, especially in the government, um, to take something down, even if on the surface it makes sense, but for the fear of, gosh, somebody must have put this up for a reason. Maybe I'm just not getting it. And boy, I'd hate to be the guy that's responsible for taking it down and then something bad happens. You know, so I think there's a certain amount of that fear of what could happen that we had to overcome. 
And we, we did that through this interagency working group and um, talking through a lot of these issues and, and trying to get to what is the real threat, what is the real risk. Um, and uh, I remember one of the efforts that we did, we, we had a big old conference room with whiteboards all around, and we locked ourselves in with a bunch of MITRE guys, really big brain space experts, and we'd sit there for many, 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 many hours, many cups of coffee, and <laughs> noodle through every single piece of the space technology. We went, you know, system by system by system, and we'd, we'd analyze it and say, you know, is this really a military, you know, capability? Is this something that's got to be protected? Is this a crown jewel? And we were trying to figure out what that list of crown jewels were, um, trying to figure out why. And we'd look at it from a perspective of, you know, like, first off, is this something that's state of the world? Is this something that everybody's got? And, you know, maybe country X, Y, or Z is already selling it, so why are we protecting it, you know, if there's nothing unique? Uh, could it be used for military purposes? Um, you know, that kind of fits the USML perspective. Um, and even if it was... Um, is it not is it not something that we could co overcome with additional or other technologies so the uh, i remember one of the miter guys mike would explain to me he says you know think of it like a humvee you know humvee is definitely a military vehicle but the core capability is really to move people from point a to point b and frankly a toyota can do that too so <laughs> by virtue of the fact of selling a humvee to a third world country, are you helping them militarily? Yeah, you're giving them a little bit better, more reliable, stronger, more durable transportation, but you're still giving them transportation that, quite frankly, an A-10 could take care of. So are they gaining a military advantage that's not overcomable? And again, so we're noodling through all these different technologies with these perspectives and trying to find what those no-kidding nuggets, those crown jewels were that you'd want to go and say, yeah, absolutely, What we want to protect these. We don't want to protect everything, you know, with low, you know, protect everything with low fences, protect the crown jewels with, with high fences, you know, really, really keep them secure. And we worked through that in an interagency um, uh, manner. We'd present our findings to the groups and, and then um, discuss, you know, hey, is this the right approach? Did we miss anything? Um, are we not thinking of something that... Uh, you know, agency XYZ was thinking of, and their perspective was different than ours. But it was very much all of us chatting to try and come up with uh, a better solution than what we were working with at the time. Right. I, I just want to just remind the, our listeners um, from the last episode, one of the things that, that I mentioned to everybody was there was a perception that ITAR was a, quote, restricted list versus a protected list. And the difference between what we're hearing from our guests today, folks, is that a restricted list, and there are some some of those kinds of things that you really shouldn't sell. But then there there are these control lists, and that's why they're called control lists. Is they're not it, it's not that you can't sell stuff on the U.S. munitions list. It just means that there that you can sell the component, but you have to follow these these protective rules to keep things secure. Um, so you can you can sell it to an ally, a specific ally, for example, and you can integrate that satellite component into one of their vehicles. Whether it's a like back in the day, there was a French a French satellite that was going to be using um, an American optic type of situation, and that was an example that some people were using. Is like that optical piece, while not necessarily the best that we had, was still pretty darn good and. As a result of it being on the munitions list, it had to follow all these procedures. 
Whereas if you're looking at something like, you know, the the stuff that you make solar cells out of, um, you know, like like the cover glass and things of that sort that you can pretty much buy just about anywhere, um, especially as the solar you know industry started getting some steam around that same time, that that was something that didn't necessarily need to be as protected. So on this on the commerce list, you could you could sell the know-how, the engineering, and the component, whereas the munitions list, you can only sell the component, not necessarily the engineering data in the background, and you had a little bit less lawyering that was required to do that. Um, one other thing I thought was uh, was interesting well, Before is you that, get off that... The, yeah, the, go ahead. The, thanks for the reminder on that. You're absolutely correct. But the piece that um, was important to industry was the cost associated with that additional oversight and controls. That drove a significant mm-hmm. cost, which made them less competitive, again, if they've got to go through all these additional things uh, when you're looking at... Uh, selling it on. It makes it less attractive. But there was a, a significant cost driver and administrative association with that um, that extra control. Right, especially for the smaller startup companies, the second and third tier suppliers. Of course, the big four obviously had enough money to pay for whole armies of lawyers. Um, but a lot of the smaller companies, I think one of the biggest small company startups that complained, um, you know, rightly so in many ways, was, was Bigelow Aerospace. Um, I think that story that you mentioned about the table was one of his, I believe, that he would use during a lot of his conference speeches. Um, but but I guess back on to the other thing is that I mentioned in the last episode, Stu, was the fact that even when you moved some of these components over to the CCL, that because of some international or other, other agreements like Wassenaar or the Missile Technology Control Regime, when you combine all these uncontrolled components into a system like Virgin Galactic Spaceship 2, because it flew a ballistic flight path, it fell under the auspices of, of the missile technology control regime and therefore became treated as a ballistic missile, even though it, it's not its mission. But if you sell that whole component, like Virgin was talking about, selling uh, in, in the Middle East, not just the service, but the actual vehicles, that that became a concern that so that integration rule um, stayed even after the first uh, reform effort went through. Um, so with that in mind, when when the group got to an agreed new framework, and, and the first framework was more of let's move some stuff over to the list and, and get more more stuff un- uncontrolled or less controlled um, that are state of the world and not state of the art. In 2014, after you moved on, um, one of the, the on the second route, we had an interagency working group again, like Stu was discussing. And one of the things that we had to do was, is in addition to moving more stuff over, we put together a review process that was continuous. So instead of having to constantly ask Congress to direct another review of Category 15 in the U.S. munitions list that that would be part of the the interagency process would be directed and existed and protected under regulation and law and policy so that the industry, if they thought something required less control or less protection, that they could recommend that to this interagency group and then every so often uh, as necessary. um, And I think it even became quarterly at some point that they would have these discussions. And so, when we put together the the first agreement, though, um, was everybody in unanimous agreement 
Stu, or was it was it a situation where somebody had to make the final call? And I think I remember who it was, but I wanted to see what you remember, and, and then we can go from there. Yeah, you're pushing my memory here, man. So, no, I mean, I, I don't think we were uh, like 100% in violent agreement, but I think that we got to a point where we had a very small list of, of crown jewels that we said, hey, yeah, keep these much more, and the rest kind of were we as a a group of folks are willing to, to move it down. But it was the the folks, um, uh, what was the agency that was running the ITAR stuff? Um, well, the the main licensing person for the DOD was the Defense Technology Security Administration, I yeah, think DITSA. it was, DITSA. Yep. Um, but there was, there was intelligence community reps. There were um, mm-hmm. Commerce Department reps. There was even folks from the civil space side, like NOAA, uh, NASA, I think, had a rep or two. So it was it was pretty much everybody from every major space sector, and then of course, um, you know, the commerce folks from the Bureau of Industrial Security yep. had a lot of the feedback from some of their studies and RFIs with industry. Yep, and it, if I remember correctly, it was the folks at DITSA that were very hesitant to change um, what they currently had on the books, and I I think a lot of that, if I had to venture a guess, was the fact that they had so few people working it. I remember them constantly saying they've got one, two people reviewing all these things and they don't have time to go back and, you know, revalidate and it's a bad idea, let's leave it the way it is and keep running it, that sort of perspective. But um, I think, I don't want to say unanimously, but the majority of that group was trying to get them to step up and actually do some of that reform back then. Right. So I, and, and, yeah, and I, I will say that these, these conversations, just for folks, a little inside baseball, these conversations we had in these rooms were not just little, you know, boring, calm, little chit-chats. These these got heated at times. People were very passionate about their positions. Yeah. Um, and it, so it's not just it's not just that the industry that and, and the commercial sector that were, you know, were very concerned or, or whatever. Each of these different viewpoints were, you know, had, had a lot of passionate advocates and detractors on both on both sides. And they all wanted to do the right thing. It wasn't that people were trying to be jerks to the industry and, and create problems. Everybody wanted, at least as I recall, everybody in the government side wanted our industry to be competitive and the and, and try to counter this so-called ITAR-free movement that Europe was doing with their heavily subsidized companies that were essentially government-ran. Um, and so as a result of all that, um, that led to to the agreement. Now, in the second one that that led to the the, the continuous review process, um, the Secretary of Commerce, I believe, was delegated the authority from the White House councils to to kind of steer the group. And I, I think they delegated that to to somebody. I forgot who what his name was, but he was a political appointee with the administration. and uh, he he did a, a lot of of hurting cats. And trying to get everybody to be to be happy with each other. Um, did you, I don't know if you remember what some of the objections were to to what we ended up doing. I think eventually people just kind of gave up and went with it and just trying to move forward uh, at, at the first time around. But if you remember any of those, do you want do you have any that come to your mind? No, and honestly, I'd, I probably couldn't even get into the details on the technologies if I did. Um, you know, just generally speaking, I think it was. You know, what you kind of articulated there from an ITAR-free perspective was, was a different, you know, if you think kind of step back and think of it uh, as a general approach. Um, and, and, and I can, again, I, I love analogies, so I'll use another analogy, okay? <laughs> and I'll caveat this 
by saying I'm not a football guy, okay? I'm way more on the motorsport motor side of things. But from a football analogy, you can look at it in kind of two perspectives. You can, you can put all your investment into the big, burly linebacker that protects your quarterback and, uh, you know, just giant monster that nobody's going to plow over. That is kind of one of the perspectives on ITAR. Build the walls, make it defensive. Another perspective, which kind of gets to the ITAR free, is don't put all your money there. Put your money in, in the fast runner. Give it to the, the fast guys on the outside that you can get the ball to, and they can just run faster than your adversary, faster than the other team. And that's the perspective that says if you allow them to compete and 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 zig when the other guys zag, kind of don't hold their um, you know arm behind their back sort of thing, the industry will figure out how to get you to that finish line faster. They will they will figure out how to invest in that next great technology um, if you enable them to have that flexibility to do it. And again, I'm not saying one's right or one's wrong. They're just kind of different approaches to achieve um, uh, you know a similar better you know, uh, end game for us. And again, it's just kind of where your perspective lies on, on uh, those approaches. And there's probably 10 other pr- approaches that I'm not even considering, you know, whether you're <laughs> melding the two or meeting halfway or things like that. But, but that kind of seemed to be like where we were falling. Like the, the Ditsa folks were on the, the, the protect everything and, and get a big linebacker and industry's like, let us run, let us go, let us, you know, just outrun them. Uh, we can do it. And that was where some of the rub at a macro level was. Yeah, and I think one of the other other uh, positions of the DOD and the intelligence side was, um, and I think even some of the commerce folks, believe it or not, were were of this persuasion, is that, yeah, we want to move the stuff that's not state-of-the-art, that doesn't need to be protected into the commerce list and make it more marketable. But they also um, were concerned about some of those international agreements that we were party to and like the Wassenaar arrangement and the in the missile technology control regime and other, you know, big important counterproliferation ideas that we're trying to help keep things, you know, less threatening in a post Cold War environment. Um, and so each of those guys were were making their cases in these meetings that hey, you know, if we do this, that's going to create some some conflict. And in addition to to changing our law here. You know, we may have to renegotiate um, a few of these international pieces because they are expecting us to have a similar viewpoint. Now, some of the other people would counter saying, well, a lot of those countries, uh, I think it was 26 or so in the Wassenaar, uh, it was 26 or 36, I, I don't remember. I mentioned it in the last episode, but um, we're, we're, we're part of that European ITAR free movement, and they were trying to gain the advantage by exploiting. Um, a, a good intentioned re, um, reaction um, to the Laurel Space incident with China in the 90s that all their rockets and satellites that used to explode are now becoming, you know, overhead reconnaissance vehicles and ICBMs um, in addition to space launch vehicles. So um, so with that, let, let me move on to, again, that the 2014, as I mentioned, was a little different from the one that, that Stu and I were in in the sense that in addition to moving more things over and, and, and evaluating which was important to keep on the munitions list and which ones were, were okay to be state of the world declared and moved over, was also that continuous approach to reviewing. And as you remember, in both the 2010 and the, the 14, um, one of the largest or biggest uh, spokespeople 
for the industry was Mike Gold. And Mike Gold is still out there um, as, a, as a spokesman for this. And one of the things that I think is interesting, like I, I led off with, is that a lot of the same arguments that Mike said in 2010, even though initially it seemed like the, the industry was, was pretty happy with a lot of the changes, and um, especially the, the continuous review process, um, it seems like they're saying a lot of the same talking points they said back in, in 2010, as if nothing has ever been fixed. And so I find that interesting, and this is pure speculation just from experience on your part, but um, why do you think that that the Space Council is looking at this again, given the, the constant review process? I mean, one of the arguments that I have heard, just to kind of help a little bit, you know, get your all your synapses going, is that it's not fast enough which is typically the argument for a lot of space things in the last few years is we're not moving fast enough. However, they don't really give a whole lot of detail about what's not fast enough and why. But I'm just curious, what, what's your thoughts on this? Is, is there, was it not good enough, you think? Did we not, I mean, it's not like we didn't think through this. So I'm just trying to get what you think from an industry perspective as, as a person who used to work with the industry, um, and maybe someday I'll try to get an industry person to come on here. I wasn't successful this this time around, but um, why is it all of a sudden a top priority as if nothing had ever been done before? Um, well, so you're correct. I haven't even thought about ITAR in, in many, many years. So <laughs> um, that's uh, something I probably haven't, you know, got a huge amount of knowledge on. But I would say probably two things come to mind. The first would be as technology marches on. And as technology evolves, both on in the U.S. government as well as um, everybody else globally, you know, um, and, and I get the review process, but, you know, sometimes the technology moves faster than the bureaucracy. Um, and, you know, is there a need to do it faster, more often reviews, uh, more detailed reviews? That I don't know, but maybe that's driving some of it. The... the, the I've been in the government a uh, long time perspective, <laughs> says that there's a life of a bureaucracy. And uh, in my judgment, that's like three years. Um, if you set up a new organization or a new process, it usually takes about three years for the bureaucracy to catch up and grind it to a halt. Um, so <laughs> it may just be that what was set up has run its useful, its useful time and there needs to be another reset and try again if you want to keep making progress. That's a somewhat you know, cynical approach, but again... Um, in my experience, what I've seen is uh, the bureaucracy will catch up with any good idea eventually and uh, and and slow it down. Well, actually, now that you mention that, I think one of the arguments that or or one of the ideas that that Mr. Gold was was promoting in some of his quotations to the Space Council or in response to the Space Council's decision to do this again was similar to what you said about technology being faster. Um, is that his idea is rather than constantly reviewing and trying to move little bits over at a time, get rid of both lists and create a unified list. Now, I know you and I both know people that would say that's a horrible idea because they each serve a, a unique and specified purpose, not just legally speaking, but, you know, from a security standpoint. Um, what would you think about a unified list just as as a as a retired professional that 
um, has had some inf some influence in the process with dealing with both of these current lists? Um, yeah, I don't know on that one there. I think I think there's pros and cons to both approaches. I mean, if you can get it down to one list, obviously that's less overhead management and things like that. But um, yeah, if, keeping them separately, if you can actually get it down to a manageable and focused, uh, you know, maybe you maybe a more restrictive knit list which with much, much fewer items uh, can achieve something um, more protective or better or whatever for those things that are tied to those international agreements versus the others. And maybe by merging them, you, you end up kind of crossing the streams and not doing anything well. Uh, I could kind of see arguments on both sides. Um, and I think a lot of it comes down to, to how big and, and of a list um, is left on either side. If it gets down to a very small amount, maybe... Maybe it makes it easier where you could, but if you still have a big list on each side, I just don't know that that's, I don't know. It comes with yeah. pros and cons. Yeah, I, I was thinking also back to your bureaucracy point and, and how slow things can go. And part of the reason why it goes so slow is that there are so many offices and several departments that have what we call equity in some of these policy decisions. And everybody wants to have their voice heard. And some of them want to slow things down or block things from happening because it doesn't serve their interest Absolutely. as a as a bureau. Um, I think um, one of the one of the famous quotes from former President Reagan was is that a government bureau is the closest thing to eternal life that we'll ever see on this side of heaven. Um, and so there is a lot of truth to that. So my guess is if they do do a single list like that, like you know, Mr. Gold would like to see. Um, what would probably be helpful to it is, like you were saying or alluding to, is process. The process itself needs to be pared down, which means you're going to have to figure out a way to realign offices and combine offices um, to have less players in the room. Because we had a full conference room. Oh, it was packed, yeah. It, it was packed full of people, and and it was one you know, one one person per entity, but there were offices and sub-offices that are part of the same department as others. So like OSD policy, NSSO, um, OUSD INS, which was the intelligence undersecretary. Um, each of them had reps. We're all from the same Department of Defense. But each of them said, we have our own specific authority and mission directives that play into this. Or people who, who control the, the, all the DOD directive building and stuff. So I found that, that very interesting um, that people haven't really talked much about the process and, and realigning the, all the bureaus uh, for that. I know there has been talk about trying to elevate Commerce Department to have more authority over licensing and things on a, in a separate issue, but maybe this is something that should be considered. Um, finally, before I, I we think, wrap up, I think to the go most... ahead to the biggest extent, I think you're going to win if you can simplify things. If simplification means bringing them all into one list, hey, winner. Keep the right people in the right conversation, make some decisions, and move on. You're going to make mistakes, but you'll make them faster, you'll learn from them, and you'll move on. Um, I'm not the type of person that's like super risk-averse. I think you're going to screw up. That's unavoidable. But if you can minimize that that overhead associated with getting to a bad answer because you're going to get a bad answer in e either approach let's just make it as simple and, and quick as possible and learn from it and move on if that means merging them hey that's that's great that sounds wonderful but 
um, if the downside of the risk is too high as you look at that, then then that just doesn't make sense. But generally speaking, yeah, to the maximum extent that you can simplify, hey, that's that's all goodness in my opinion. Yeah, all the risk analysis has to be done. There's a lot of risk that has to be looked at, not just from a standpoint of the impact to industry and our economy, but also to the to the risk of security. Um, so anyway, is there any any last final thoughts or any suggestions for the Space Council folks that may or may not be listening? What are your pearls of wisdom? What, what's your what's your your special answer for this for this critical issue facing the space industry in our country today, Colonel Aiken Cade retired? No, I think I think really it is you if you want to get this thing going forward, you can't be a risk avoider. You've got to be a risk manager. The the risk avoidance days are a recipe for failure and not making any progress. You've got to accept and manage the risk, not accept foolhardy risk, but you've got to be able to move forward and accept failure. I mean, if you look at guys like like Musk and some of these these, you know, real pioneers in the space business, they're taking big risks. They're blowing things up and learning from it fast. You 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 fail fast, you you learn fast, you fix it and you try not to repeat the same failure. But you know, you can't just avoid risk all day long. That that's just we're going to come to a screeching halt if we do that. So, manage it, make smart decisions, don't make foolhardy risks, um but but make the decisions and move forward and learn. Awesome. Well, that is all the time we have for this episode. Thanks again, Stu, to Colonel Aiken Cade, retired, for joining us today. And uh, for all of us, you and you, my beloved audience, thank you very much for listening. And happy Valentine's Day. <laughs> thank you for listening to NIDS Knowledge, Real Space Strategy. The Real Space Strategy Edition is produced under NIDS Podcasting Network, a division of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. NIDS. NIDS is a 501c3 organization dependent on donations to provide this podcast and bring about awareness of the peacekeeping value of U.S. strength and our national deterrence. You can catch all of our podcasts or provide feedback at thinkdeterrence.com. I want to thank our producer, Kimberly Sherrington, our sponsors, and all the fantastic members of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies for making this podcast possible. Stay tuned next week for another exciting and informative NIDS knowledge.